Good morning. Hi everyone, it's great to see you. Uh, my name is Robert Miller and I'm uh, part of this congregation. I've been part of Mary Creek for a year now, which has been a fantastic experience. It's been incredibly encouraging to be uh, part of Mary Creek. So I just wanted to say thanks to everyone. It's, uh, I think this is a very encouraging congregation to be part of. Uh, my work during the week is to work with university students and I work with the Christian Union, alongside the Christian Union group at Melbourne Uni. And my job is to help students to become followers of Jesus and build them up in their faith and help them to go out into the world to serve God. Um, we've, in our series over the last uh, few weeks, we've been thinking about issues of discipleship from the Gospel of Luke. What does Jesus teach about following him? What does it mean to follow him? What are some of the big challenges in following Jesus in our lives? And we've heard some of those um, over the summer. Things to do with our commitment to God, our seriousness about following God's word and um, some other key issues in the Christian life. And here we come to another one of those. Last week we already heard something about the need to be shrewd with what you've been given by God. And in some ways this continues today, continues that theme uh, as a key issue in discipleship. So let's have a look at it together. It's on page six in your booklets there and it would be great if you could have that open um, and that will help us as we look at it together. Why don't we pray and ask for God to be with us now as we read his word. Uh, we thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for your great kindness to us. We thank you that you're not silent, but that you have spoken. And we thank you that these words of Jesus have been preserved for our sake. And we pray that as we read them, as we think about them now, you please soften our hearts so that we can understand what, you've, what, you say, what you're saying to us and we could respond to you wholeheartedly. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus has been teaching the crowd and someone interjects. They yell out something in the middle of what Jesus has been saying. And it's really nothing to do with what Jesus has been going on about to this point. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is a request to Jesus as a religious teacher to be a kind of arbiter in the situation which requires some interpretation of the law, the law of Moses. Uh, asking Jesus to intervene on behalf, presumably of a younger brother whose older brother is not sharing the inheritance with him. Uh, this person wants intervention on his behalf in a, a, a dispute which is partly civil but partly religious as well. And Jesus... Uh, doesn't really want to get involved in sorting that, this issue out. This is not why Jesus came, to sort out our squabbles, uh, but he actually uses this as a moment to teach the crowd uh, something important. So first of all, Jesus questions the role he's being asked to play. I'm not here to be your uh, arbiter. Uh, but uh, secondly, he warns them that the, the, even the impulse behind the demand is wrong. Even the thing that's behind this person's request is dangerous he said to them verse 15 watch out be on your guard against all kinds of greed life does not consist in an abundance of possessions this is something that we jesus says we need to be on our guard about something that we really need to be careful about uh, something which where we really need um, to take deliberate action to avoid a big problem that can happen in our lives. And Jesus then illustrates the warning that he's given by telling a story. He tells them a parable. 
It's about a rich man and his abundant harvest. This guy has a problem. It's a good problem, you could say. Uh, His land produces a very abundant harvest, so abundant that the current barns that he have has uh, are not sufficient to store up all the surplus grain that he's going to have. It's such a big harvest that he can't fit it all in his barns. And so he has to come up with a plan. And he comes up with what appears to be quite a good plan. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will be able to store my surplus grain. And he imagines the future. Once he's done this, what will it be like? I'll have plenty of grain laid up for many years and I can say to myself, take life easy, eat and drink and be merry. So the plans that he makes are plans which are partly about his security, that if he is able to build and fill these bigger barns, he'll have plenty for many years. He'll be uh, disaster proof. If there's a drought, he'll be okay. He'll have enough for the future. He'll be secure in his wealth. But more than that, that wealth and security will enable him to just enjoy life. He's also planning for his own pleasure in the future. He's planning for security and he's planning for pleasure. But there is a problem. There is a problem with his plans and in fact immediately before he's even apparently had a chance to carry out his plans, God intervenes. God intervenes. But God said to him, verse 20, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? There are two problems with the plans. That even though the plans have an appearance of wisdom, uh, there are two significant issues here. The first one is that he planned without reckoning with his own mortality. He planned without reckoning with his own mortality. Now, I think one of the advantages of... Uh, turning 40, say, of getting to a certain age, (laughs) is that uh, you start to get some perspective in your life on things that people regard as important. And one of the things, of course, people are really interested in is the mega rich. Who is the richest person in Australia? Now, I've turned 40 myself fairly recently, and so I can remember back quite a way. That was a joke, by the way. I can remember that quite a way, and when I was, the first time I became aware of it, the richest person in Australia was a guy called Robert Holmes Accord. Don't know if you remember Robert Holmes Accord. He was actually Australia's first billionaire, and uh, he acquired at least a billion dollars of assets, um, and um, he was a Western Australian. He was a kind of corporate raider. He built up this very significant fortune very quickly. But then, on the 2nd of September 1990, he suffered financial catastrophe. His fortune went from over a billion dollars to nothing in one day. A billion dollars to nothing in one day. Do you know what happened to him? At the age of 53, he died of a heart attack. At that point, Kerry Packer became Australia's richest person. And Kerry Packer accumulated a fortune of $6.5 billion. $6.5 billion. He was Australia's richest man for 15 years. But then, on the 26th of December, Boxing Day 2005, he also suffered financial catastrophe. And his fortune went from over $6 billion to zero overnight. What happened? Kerry Packer died of kidney failure 
on Boxing Day 2005. Uh, to this day, their fortunes have not recovered. They're still on zero. And in fact, if you have any money at all, you are wealthier than Kerry Packer and Robert Holmes Accord combined. <laughs> Death is, a, is a, a personal financial crisis of the highest order. Uh, it reduces your fortune to nothing instantly. And uh, so if we make plans uh, that fail to account for our mortality, then actually they're foolish plans. But there's a second problem. The second problem is actually more severe. The second problem with his plans are that they don't reckon with God and God's judgment. See, God pronounces an immediate judgment on this man and he calls him a fool. You fool. God is the one who has the last word on our lives, not us, not our friends, not even the verdict of history. The real thing that matters is what God thinks of our lives. And he says that this plan was foolish. But this man has, in fact, been making plans without regard for God. The plans that he made had nothing to do with God or, in fact, any other person at all. They were entirely plans about himself, his security and his pleasure. And according to God, this is great foolishness. This is great foolishness. So the plans that human beings make may appear prudent and wise and careful and so on. They may look wise to us, but without really thinking about the horizons of death and judgment, uh, they're, they're actually foolishness. They're foolishness. They're short-sighted and they don't take account of the things that really matter. And so Jesus, uh, having told the story, then generalises from it. Verse 21, he says, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. If you act like this man in the story, then you can expect the same, Jesus says. You will lose what you have worked for, and God will call you a fool. And I think that this is tremendously challenging to us because it's quite possible that for many of us essentially what our lives are about is building bigger barns. Our lives and the lives of people around us in the society that we live in are about building bigger barns. A few years ago I got given a book uh, called A Thousand and One Albums you must listen to before you die. Have you ever, have you seen one of these books? Actually, quite a bunch of them now. Uh, there's a thousand and one wines you must taste, a thousand and one travel destinations you must visit, and so on. I've also been given a thousand and one movies you must watch. Uh, and I, I'm very grateful for the book, but I feel the pressure. I feel the pressure. When I got a thousand and one albums, I looked at it. And one of the encouraging things was I had already had the first one, uh, Songs for Swingin' Lovers by Frank Sinatra. And I already had the last one, um, The White Stripes Get Behind Me, Satan. So I felt good. I said, now it's really just a matter of filling in the gaps, right? Uh, but there are significant gaps there. And the movies, I think I've seen about maybe 300 of them. But I'm 48 years old. The clock is ticking. I just don't think I'm going to make it. I don't think I'm going to make which, which raises the question, what, mu what actually must I do before I die? What do I really have to do before I die? Um, and the answer, according to Jesus here, is you, 
You must, I must be rich towards God. The thing I must do is be rich towards God. Um, and so we're going to think a little bit about how to do that. What does that mean? But I just want to point out before we go on to that, that this teaching of Jesus here is not isolated. It's not just, this is not just a one-off uh, from Jesus. In, in terms of Jesus' teaching uh, in the Gospels, in terms of Jesus' overall message, again and again, talks about the danger of the desire for wealth and the good news that God has for those who are poor. And it's really worth us understanding that this is a crucial issue of Christian discipleship. Remember the Beatitudes? This is, uh, let me just remind you of some of the things that are in Luke's Gospel alone. Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you'll be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. We have Jesus' encounter with the rich ruler, where the man goes away sad because he's unable to give up his wealth in order to have eternal life with Jesus. Wealth prevents him from having eternal life. Wealth is seen here as spiritually dangerous. Jesus says how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Last week we heard Jesus said, uh, you cannot serve both God and mammon, or God and money was the translation there, but really the word mammon is the word for wealth. Jesus shows us that the desire for wealth is actually an alternative God. This is the only other God really that Jesus directly mentions in the Bible as a challenge to the true God, the God of wealth. And Jesus says you cannot serve both. I gather that the reason Jesus says you can't serve both is because that is exactly the thing that we try to do, the thing that we're tempted to do. We want to have God in our life, yes. We also want the other God, the God of wealth, who brings us, we hope, security and pleasure in the future. Jesus teaches us that the desire for wealth chokes Christian lives. In the parable of the sower, you might remember the, the, uh, the soil which has the thorns in it. The thorns grow up and choke the, the growing plant. Uh, Jesus says they represent, the thorns represent the lure of wealth and the cares of the world. In uh, wanting these things, in wanting to store up things for ourselves, our Christian lives can be choked so that they're unfruitful. Uh, and most scary of all, most frightening of all, Jesus tells the story of the rich man who goes to Hades, awaiting God's final judgment on him, uh, and the poor man who goes to Abraham's side, a state of blessedness. That's actually the one that Pete asked me to preach on this morning. Um, so actually, this is the lighter version of what it might have been, uh, looking at the story of the rich fool. So this is not in, just in isolation. Uh, Jesus, uh, again and again, hammers this issue, and I gather he does that because this is the one which is the most dangerous for us over time. If we want to be a disciple of Jesus, uh, then this, it's absolutely crucial that we confront this. If you're someone who's thinking about becoming a follower of Jesus, you do need to realise that becoming a follower of Jesus will mean dealing with the issue of the desire for wealth in your life. I think it's fair to say that this is the number one long-term issue in Christian discipleship. There may be more immediate issues that you need to confront and face. There may be other things which are more urgent in terms of repentance 
and trust in God. But over the longer term, if you want to be a fruitful, faithful follower of Jesus in your life, then this is crucial. And I think it's especially so if you are one of the wealthy. Now, very few of us count ourselves as wealthy, I think. Uh, And the main reason for that is because we can contrast ourselves with the mega rich. We contrast ourselves with the, you know, Gina Reinhart, Kerry Packer and so on. In fact, uh, online it's possible to calculate your weekly wage as a proportion of Gina Reinhart's fortune. Uh, There's a little, you know, little jealousy site there where you can feel good about how poor you are relative to Australia's, well, she was Australia's richest woman until recently. She probably will be again. It's just the, the fluctuating uh, iron ore price, I think. Uh, but that should not blind... The, the existence of the mega-rich shouldn't blind us to the fact that most of us are wealthy on a world scale uh, or that we will become wealthy over time. Uh, if you're a single person, you have a, if you're on a wage of over $80,000, that is enough in time to propel you into the, into the 1%, the top 1%. Most of us exist in the, certainly in the top 10%, many of us in the top five, uh, some of us here in the top two or 1% that we are among the wealthy. And therefore, this is an urgent issue for us to deal with, not just a hypothetical about, oh, you know, do I desire to become wealthy? But actually, this is about me, where I am now. Okay, well, what does it mean to be rich towards God? That is the challenge that Jesus puts before us. Well, first of all, uh, I think generally being rich towards God is another way that Jesus uses of talking about being devoted to God and to his plans and purposes rather than our own, a life that's oriented towards God and his ways. What Jesus calls elsewhere, seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness, being on about the rule and reign of God in the world and in our own lives and wanting to live in the way that's right in accord with God's ways. And therefore, specifically with regard to this issue, using our wealth and money in the light of that, thinking about wealth and money um, as part of thinking about our lives as part of God's plans and purposes. Jesus is not just trying to get us to be more kind of religious. He's not trying to tell you that you need to be more, uh, you know, a more religiously devoted person. But rather, here is, here is a call for us to get in touch with our true purpose. We were made to know God, to love God, to live in relationship with God, and for that relationship to be affecting every area of our life, including what we do with our money and possessions. This is where we're going to find true and lasting fulfilment and true and lasting security, investing our life in God, in knowing God, in loving God, and in serving God. So this has to come out in every area of our lives, including what we do with our money. So it's going to be, first of all, thinking about what our life is oriented towards. Is it oriented towards the accumulation of stuff, the accumulation of wealth for the sake of security and pleasure, or is it going to be about using what I have for God's plans and purposes in accord with his kingdom? That's generally, I think, what it means to be rich towards God. But specifically, uh, the key issue here, I think, is about giving your money away, about us giving our money away. Uh, in the Bible, first of all, you see people divesting themselves of what they have. And this is the, the radical moment where people come to faith or are challenged in coming to faith to give away part or all of what we have. You have that in the story of the rich ruler who refuses to give away uh, what he has, but also in the story of Zacchaeus who actually does give away a substantial part of his wealth 
um, in response to Jesus and the salvation and forgiveness that Jesus brings. But it's also not just about that kind of initial divestment, which might be, I think, appropriate to you if you're someone who realises you've been gathering up stuff for yourself, not caring about others, not caring about God. And as an initial way of responding to God, it would be a great thing to do to actually give away some or all of what you've accumulated. For most people, it will be a matter of ongoing giving in our lives. Uh, Regular giving of what we have to others um, as a way, first of all, of worshipping God and of doing good in the world. But giving away money regularly is also a spiritual discipline that God gives us. Uh, A way of creatively lowering your standard of living and lessening your security for the sake of others. And uh, this is uh, something that we would do to gradually train us uh, to not be accumulating things for ourselves, but to invest in God's purposes. This helps us over time um, to change in our hearts. It's a spiritual practice or spiritual discipline which gradually forms us as disciples. In the New Testament, as far as I can see, there are five different kinds of giving. There are some overlaps here, but let me just quickly describe them to you. First of all, giving to the poor, that's giving alms. Uh, Secondly, giving to poor Christians or poor churches that are in need. This is finding ways of helping those Christians in the world who uh, are substantially in need. There's uh, giving to the ministry of your church. This is an obligation that we have that we each give to support the ministry of the church that we're part of. Fourthly, there's giving to support the spread of the gospel in other places. And so investing in that work uh, elsewhere in the world. And finally, there's giving which expresses gratitude or a sense of spiritual debt. This is the kind of giving which says, I really benefited from something in the past. I'm going to give a gift as a way of acknowledging that spiritual debt. You see that in the gift that Paul takes to the church uh, in Jerusalem in the New Testament. So we're talking about regular, planned and generous giving. And if you're an adult with a regular income, over time you should be able to kind of create a portfolio of giving, which you can administer and enjoy uh, diversifying your investments in the world um, for, the, for helping people who are poor and for fostering uh, the spread of the gospel in the world, that you would have a series of things like this. And apart from other, other, the other good things about it, it's also good for you. To learn to do that, but really only helps you over time, I think, if you feel the pain of it. Uh, if you don't, if if you don't really notice that you're giving, then it, as a spiritual dis, I mean, it's a good thing to do in itself, but it, as a spiritual discipline, it's not helping you so much as when you start to think, "Gee, I really could have used this money for something else," or "Gee, we're just." we're just a bit short of money at the moment. If we hadn't given that money to such and such, we'd be feeling okay now. It's when you start to feel that stress, uh, that difficulty that comes with giving, that you're learning more and more to trust God and to actually deliberately choose to invest in God's stuff uh, and not your own security, not our own security. So I think over time I I found this very helpful and encouraging uh, and difficult at times as well to trust God through regular giving. So generally, uh, planning about planning uh, for the future with regard to God's purposes rather than our own. Secondly, giving regularly giving away what we have, and thirdly, uh, learning 
the virtues and habits of mind that are actually going to help you to live that kind of life which is not obsessed with accumulation. That we, first of all, need to learn to find our security in God and in his promises, uh, and that will help us deal with the anxiety which Jesus teaches uh, lies behind so much desire to accumulate. In fact, Jesus, it's much more anxiety rather than greed which seems to be the main driver in Jesus' uh, teaching in terms of people's uh, desire to accumulate more for themselves. So finding our security in God, learning contentment, uh, to, to be able to say, I have enough, and to make do with less than you might have. Simplicity, which is related to that, uh, creating a lifestyle, cultivating a lifestyle that's plain and simple and not extravagant, where there's a, a clear difference in our mind between what's normal and everyday and what's special um, and you know, celebratory. That kind of distinction in our lives will help us. Um, to cultivate generosity, one of the fruits of the Spirit, to be able to give freely and enjoy that, and to cultivate joy in our life where we have a deep happiness in being able to know God, which means we actually don't care so much about um, the things, uh, accumulating things in this world. Uh, I think also just a couple of words for parents at this point. I think it's fantastic to involve your children um, in this practice of learning to give money away and learning to think about the world um, in terms of God's kingdom rather than our uh, creating our own kind of castle, our, our living the Aussie dream. To involve children in that, help, to help them understand that. And on the other side, to be really careful about not using uh, our children as an excuse for accumulation. Um, this is uh, an, an excuse that we sometimes use uh, I don't want stuff for myself, but really for the sake of my children, it's important that we own all these things or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. That there's a danger there that we really need to keep an eye on in terms of justifying holding on to stuff. Well, I think the question that is reasonable to ask at this point is, how can Jesus be so demanding? How can Jesus be so demanding of us? And here we need to remember the good news of the gospel. The reason that Jesus can be so demanding is that he himself has given everything for us. He has given everything for us. Uh, listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus only asks us to do what he himself has done. He became poor for our sake. He laid aside his riches for the sake of others. He gave himself for our sins. In fact, that phrase, gave himself, is found again and again in the New Testament. Jesus gave himself. He, gave him, he didn't hold anything back for our sake, but gave himself totally. He died on the cross for our sins. He gave his life for us. And in fact, it's Jesus who enables us to know God and to be rich towards God. It's only through him that we can come to know God and have that rich relationship with God. So Jesus has every right to ask us. He's given everything for us and we're called to respond to his total giving of himself. So I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. It's possible to be a very intelligent person, a very high-achieving person, a very wealthy person, 
and to be a fool at the same time. That's what Jesus teaches us here. Any person whose life is about accumulating things for themselves is a fool. And Jesus calls us to be wise. That if we're wealthy people or have the potential to be wealthy, we have to get wise and we have to act uh, and make sure that we are living lives that are rich towards God in response to what Jesus has done. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray. Uh, We thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for your great generosity to us in giving us your only son. And we pray that you would help us to learn to be generous, to turn our back on the foolishness of our world and its obsessions, to be people who find our security in you and so can be overflowing with generosity to others. We ask for your help. We pray that you please soften and change our hearts. We might become more and more a generous community that brings glory to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.